a seat, everybody. Hey, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to actually take our offering this morning um, right here before as we start the sermon. So um, if, you, uh, if you're new to this place, um, we, just, we constantly say this, but we just don't want you to feel like there's a, an obligation to, uh, to, to <laughs> pay to hear a sermon or anything like that. I mean, that would be kind of weird. But um, we just, uh, if you call us your church home, uh, jump in, be a part of this. Um, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for being here. Hey, if you've got uh, a Bible with you, um, sometimes people bring those occasionally. Uh, we have a stack of them right in the back, right in the middle here on a table. So we'd love to have you follow along. Especially today, it's an important one. Uh, we're uh, jumping into the fourth chapter of a letter that Paul wrote to the people in Thessalonica. And so this is week nine. If you haven't been uh, around much or if you want to catch up, um, there are times in the life, the season of our church that we just, we dive into something like just, we just chew on everything. And this is one of those um, and so this letter has just been really important, and I think it's been really important for us as a church right now in the life of our church, but not only that, in the, in the kind of the season of our world, as it were. So uh, jump in with me, will you? And we will be uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, famous passage here. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe, uh, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you, that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay. This is that passage we talked about a number of weeks ago um, that has got a lot of meaning. It's got a lot of um, energy in our lives, um, particularly those of us who have grown up in the church. Um, the other day I saw that classic bumper sticker, that said, warning, in case of rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. I don't know if you guys have seen that, that one. Maybe you have it. Don't raise your hand um, if you have it. Because um, uh, I don't like it. <laughs> I'll just, um, I, I think that there's something here. Um, we've got a lot of stories. We've got a lot of, of, of really kind of some theology, some baggage with this verse, these verses in um, our lives and in how we think about what will happen um, down the road, right? I mean, is this passage about um, one day waking up and um, your kids are missing and airplanes are falling from the sky 
um, kind of thing. Is that what this passage is saying? Um, I actually love this passage of Scripture, and my hope is, is that at the end of today that you will love it more than you did before. Uh, because there is, and I want to show a lot of respect here for where many of us come from, but there is, a, there is a lot here that has been misread and misinterpreted. And we need to do the hard work of, of finding out what it's saying. What is it actually saying? What was Paul saying to the people of Thessalonica? Not to 21st century Americans. What was he saying to them? And then we can see what he's saying to us. Because it's, you know, it's really popular. You, I think it, you don't even have to be a church-going person to understand this idea of a rapture, right? I mean, you could have just walked in. This could be day one for you in church. And you've probably heard these kind of weird ideas of, of <laughs> the basic idea really is this. That suddenly, without warning, uh, people will disappear into thin air. That people will just be gone. And um, while the rest of you, and they're going to escape, and while the rest of humanity is, uh, is plunged into chaos, and there's disarray and experiencing, everybody's experiencing all kinds of heinous evil. Um, it may be something you've heard of. It may be something that you've grown up with. It may be something that you still think that that's what this means. And and so I want to be really sensitive and show a lot of respect here, but, but at the same time, I want to challenge it a little bit and, and, and just say, okay, what is really happening here? Because if that's really what it's saying, if all of what we believe centers around that, then uh, my question to you is, why isn't it an idea of a rapture? Why isn't it in, in any of the early creeds? We see no mention of this. In any of the earliest writings, uh, and from Irenaeus to, I mean, just any of them. And so, my uh, assumption is, is that we all have some of this in our thinking. And we need to think about it. What does this really, really mean? And so, um, I've done some, some work. Um, one of my, deg- my degree in, in my master's degree, I usually don't talk about this, but it's in historical theology. And it, the reason why I got so excited about that is because I wanted to find out where things came from. Like, when did people start believing in this? And why did they start believing in this? And when did this become a big part of what Christians believe? The interesting thing about this idea of, of a rapture and us leaving and airplanes falling from the sky and things like that actually started less than 200 years ago in Glasgow, Scotland at a prayer meeting. That's where it started. And a young woman, she's about 15 years old, named Margaret MacDonald, she claimed to have a vision that people would be taken away and, and Jesus would come back twice. He would come back once and, and take people away, and then he'd come back again. And this, this kind of took off. There was a pastor uh, named John Darby who, who kind of took and rolled with this. Um, it didn't really catch on in, in Great Britain and Scotland. It actually caught on when, when Darby actually d- took mission trips to this, this new country, you know, this new-ish country called America. And he came during a time when America wasn't doing so great. 
He came during uh, and before and during the, the Civil War period. And so during that time, on his trips to America, he found himself uh, talking about this idea of, of a rapture, um, that, that Christians will be taken away, and they will, they will miss all the crazy, hard chaos that was going on. Um, and, it, you know, it really did sink in for folks. I mean, they, many times, I mean, if you've studied the Civil War, it probably felt like Armageddon. It probably felt like it was just the whole world was unraveling because, uh, you know, you have half a million people dead and who wouldn't want to get out of there? Who wouldn't want, like, if, if, if the rapture was going to help us ex- escape this really heinous time uh, and this is heinous but we're still here, oh my goodness, I don't want to be here for that, Right? And so you have this um, mindset, this, when this, this nation that we live in is rising up, brother against brother, family against family. I mean, you could see some of this big apocalyptic language. And so the mindset was even exacerbated by World War I. And so it became part of our Christian culture to believe that um, this was a literal floating up into the sky that we would experience as Christians. Now, I want to dive into this a little bit because I actually think that this rapture-based theology gives us a, uh, it tends to think that we can escape difficulty, pain, suffering. And it's this idea that, and I think we kind of all struggle with this idea that, um, that uh, godly people uh, shouldn't be subject. I mean, there's something in us that thinks, well, man, God, if God really loved me, I mean, I shouldn't be suffering like this. I shouldn't be experiencing all these difficulties in my life. I shouldn't be struggling with all these things that are happening. But the reality is that sometimes terrible things happen to good people. And Scripture doesn't promise us an out, Okay? It doesn't promise us it out. It promises us a how. And so what I want to do is I want to dive into three words that are in this passage. And then two kind of uh, backstory pieces. And then hopefully it's going to all make sense. And then you, you right now are writing me angry emails in your mind right now. And I want to encourage you to just hang with me. Okay, hang with me. Okay, the first word is sleep. Okay, so if you have the passage open, a few places he talks about sleep, Paul does. Uh, uh, I don't want you to be uninformed, verse 13, about those who sleep in death. Uh, Verse 14, it says, uh, bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. And then in verse 15, he says it again, uh, we'll certainly proceed, those who have fallen asleep. This idea of sleep in the ancient world meant death. That's what it meant. And so for, uh, for the ancient world, it was a very simple metaphor that meant someone who had died, fallen asleep. Remember, Paul is talking to primarily Greek people, people who don't have the same um, belief in the afterlife that the Jewish people have. So their idea of death was sleep, nothing conscious. You're, you're just dead. But the basic summary is that 
At death, and this is what Scripture says, at death with Jesus, you will be and I will be, if you follow Jesus, awake and alive in his presence. That's the idea of Scripture. Full of joy, uh, better by far off than we were now. And that's really all we know. That's all we know. The next word I want to talk about is resurrection. In verse 14 and verse 16, he talks about rising. He says that, um, uh, verse 14, it says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. By the way, that's probably one of the very first Christian creeds. That word, that phrase, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Fundamental, foundational part of what we believe. The second part is in verse 16 where it says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This idea of resurrection um, in that day and age was absolutely mind-blowing, and it is for us too. This doesn't mean going to heaven when you die. Uh, this means something actually different. It actually means that, um, that you're your new self, you, your, your body, your physical body will actually be joined together again with your non-physical. And you will be remade. Um, the teaching about resurrection, just basic summary is this. That at death, your body goes into the ground, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Your non-physicality, that part of you that scientists can't explain, that that. That, you know, there's the mind and then there's the brain, right? There's the mind and that personality piece, that, that, that stuff that makes you, you, unique to anybody else that scientists can't explain, that goes. Uh, whether if you're used to words like consciousness or the eye or whatever, your soul goes to be with God. And that part of you goes to be with Jesus and there's this, this, this kind of period, this is waiting for resurrection, and resurrection is an event, okay? It's an event in the future that we believe because of Scripture that will happen. It's an event that when Jesus comes back, he's going to foundationally and cosmically recreate everything. You, me, this world. That you are reunited with your body, your non-physicality and your physicality are remade. It says act of God from the ground up. That's resurrection, okay? It's different than going to be in heaven, okay? This is resurrection talk. And, and really, we're the only people on the planet that actually believe this. I mean, this is a foundational difference with just about any other thing, except for, except for reincarnation, which is very different. But this is something that is just your, 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 new, your, your, your fundamental self, you, is back and without blemish. So when we talk about stuff like this, we're not talking about life after death. We're talking about life after life after death. That's what resurrection is. It is life after life after death. Scripture is very clear on this. And the third word I want to talk about is clouds. I know you're like, really? Clouds? I'm not talking about clouds. So I want you to all draw your cloud. Just kidding. But this is also symbolic language, okay? And so it, this idea of God appearing, it's a theophany, this idea that, that the visible God makes himself visible 
And usually in Scripture, not always, but usually in the, in the narrative of Scripture, God makes his presence known in a cloud. And we see this in Sinai when God descends on a cloud on the, on the mountain of Sinai. We see this um, in Daniel chapter 7, that one like the Son of Man will become riding on the clouds. We see this in the Psalms that talks about uh, the Savior riding on the clouds. See this in Jesus, the story of Jesus' ascension when it says that the cloud took him out of their sight. It's, it's all metaphorical language. It's, all, it's not literal. It's not like Jesus is standing and surfing a cloud. This is metaphorical language. Okay? This is how the writers wrote. And so when you think clouds, whenever you read clouds in Scripture, think God is close by. Think God's presence is near. Okay? And so a couple bits of backstory. I know you guys are dying to get into this, but maybe not. Maybe you're just dying for it to be over. But um, two quick bits of backstory. First, the future. The future. What this means. Here's what we know. And here's what all Christians, Orthodox, believing, following, Jesus-following Christians believe. And we can all agree on this. That Jesus is coming back. Old Testament, New Testament, there's just threads. Jesus is coming back. There is a return of God to uh, this planet. The Spirit is here now, engaged in this reality that we live in, but Jesus is coming back. Second one is resurrection. Resurrection for everyone. The righteous and the unrighteous. That on one day, this cosmic event, will, we will all face, we will all have resurrection and then face what Scripture calls Judgment, which is a, that's a tough one, right, for us, sometimes to hear that. But all will answer, uh, the good and the bad. It's a, it's a good thing, or it can be a bad thing. It could be a beautiful thing, or it could be a terrifying thing. And at that point, all of evil will be shut out of this new creation. Um, human evil, spiritual evil. Material evil, disease, uh, death, shut out okay, of this remade earth, this recreated earth, this resurrected earth. And then there's going to be recreation and there's going to be healing and renewing of everything and the, the timing and the order. No one knows. We, we can disagree on all those things. And, but we all believe these fundamental things. And no matter what your background, no matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your, your upbringing, no matter what your denomination, no matter where you were born in this world, if you've heard the message of Jesus, we can agree on these. You need to check. We need to talk if, you, if you're not sure. And, 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 and more than, that's more, all those things, those four things are more than enough to keep you and I busy. <laughs> those, those four things are really powerful things. And they're more than enough to keep you and me going. And, and, and I can argue that everything else is secondary. It is. It's secondary. Whether you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, whether you're a pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, whether you're an amillennialist, futurist, a preterist, whether you're going, what are you talking about? Those are all big churchy words that people use to define themselves. And then they size each other up, like, what are you? 
When you go to seminary, people are like, yeah, well, what side of this are you on? Now, that stuff really matters if you know the, base, if the, the, the basic stuff. Jesus coming back, resurrection will happen. There's going to be judgment and recreation of everything. And that's beautiful stuff. That's beautiful language. And so Paul, and the, the second thing I want to go into is why is Paul writing about the future? Why is Paul writing 20 years after Jesus has, has died, rose, and ascended into heaven, Paul is writing a community of mainly Greek people about who Jesus is and that he's coming back. Why is he writing about the future to them? Is he writing about the future to them because they have this hunger for end times prophecy? No. They have people who have fallen in love with Jesus in this last year that Paul has known him. Paul knew him for like maybe a year when this letter arrived, okay? And in that time, Paul shows up, uh, preaches. He's there for like three weeks, four weeks, whatever, gets kicked out, leaves, can't go back. He's longing to be with him. He loves them so much. He catches wind that, that you know, uh, Titus dies and, and just different people in their church die. Okay? Some of them facing difficult persecution and hardship because of following Jesus. And they want to know, the people want to know, hey, is he going to miss out? Is Hank going to miss out? That's not a very Greek name, but that's all I had. <laughs> is Hank going to miss out on what you told us would happen? You said that Jesus was coming back and that this, there was going to be a, uh, all this stuff that, and he hasn't come back yet, and Hank died. What happens to Hank? Because you've got to understand that this, this community is living in a culture that does not believe in the afterlife. Okay? So they're not, Paul's not writing to them to satisfy their, their, their end time schematic. <laughs> they just want to know where Hank's doing right now. They just miss him. And they're sad. And they don't know what's coming next. Okay? And so, verse uh, 13, brothers and sisters, Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed. He's writing them because he doesn't want them to be uninformed about what comes next. All right? See, in the pagan world, they they were known for wailing and and screaming and cutting themselves when someone died. This this extravagant mourning process. Some of it was a show, um, but some of it was just, um, they, they just had no hope. They had no understanding of what was next. And when Jesus, you know, the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus coming, Paul says, is a prototype for you and for me. That actually one day, you and I will have our own Easter Sunday. Does that make sense? That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because of what Jesus has promised, because of how this works out, Jesus was the first one. You and I will follow. Followers of Jesus can believe and hope and trust in this faith. I mean, tell me, tell me it's not a leap of faith. <laughs> I mean, it's just you can't, you can't, can't prove it, right? And so what 
resurrection means to these people is everything because uh, if the gospel is that one sentence creed I told you, for we believe that Jesus dies and rose again, then that changes everything. It changes not only what happens now, but it changes what we can hope for in the future. And if we're hoping in the right things in the future, it changes how we live today. And so Paul is just zoning in. He's just focusing in on them. Uh, This word rapture, and we'll get into some of the words here um, on on the actual word rapture, but uh, Matthew 24 is another passage that we get the word rapture. And we'll talk about that. It says, then we will appear, then will, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they, when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds, okay, you got the clouds part there, with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And so this is just very image, these are Jesus' words, okay, talking about, what is to come in the future. He's trying to explain something to the people in very metaphoric language because we're people. All we know is the context and the language that we live in. And so Jesus, every single time that, that, that the end of things is talked about, these things appear in Scripture. Heaven, angels, commands, some sort of a command, a trumpet, okay, and clouds, those, those images appear. And so when we kick, kick into verse 15 here, it says, according, verse 15 back in Thessalonians, it says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from, the, from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is symbolic, metaphorical language. Okay? And, and what this means is it doesn't mean that, that those people who died already, like Hank, okay? It doesn't mean that Hank's going to miss out on it. In fact, Paul's trying to say, no, Hank's going to be at the front of the line. Hank's going to be there. Hank's going to be in front of you. <laughs> Hank, don't worry about Hank. Because remember, they're fearing those who would miss out. And, and then the next is the, the controversial line. And we're going to get into this a little bit. And I promise you that I'm going to land this, this, um, this no, I'm not going to say plain. Okay, we're going to, verse 17. After that, it says, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Actually, this is beautiful language. This is beautiful language announcing something way bigger than Nicolas Cage's movie. I'm I'm just trying to help you with this. This is actually beautiful, symbolic, powerful language. This, this idea of being caught up together, it's, it's harpazo in Greek. And actually, when it was translated into Latin, um, the Latin Vulgate, it, it, it came with this new word where we get rapture, which is called repare, repare. This word rapture, which means to, to be taken away, to be snatched. Okay, and this is where we get this idea that has informed much of our end times theology over the last couple hundred years. 
And, and this, is just, this is metaphoric language, these, these ideas of let, caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. It's all metaphoric language. And in fact, if you go to the next chapter, chapter 5, listen to these first three verses. Actually, there's going to be four. It says, Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Okay? While people are saying peace and safety... Destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Go to verse 8. It says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober and putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation as a helmet. So here's our, here's our metaphors. Thief in the night, pregnant woman, Roman soldier. Paul is not saying that Jesus is a thief Literally, he's not saying that Jesus is a pregnant woman, and he's not saying that Jesus is a Roman soldier, or, or that we should be Roman soldiers. He is saying something bigger. He's saying, he's using this metaphoric language. Almost always, scripture writers talk about the future. They resort to metaphor, almost always. In fact, always. N.T. Wright put it like this. All talk about the future is a signpost pointing into the fog. We don't have language for it. All we have is pictures and images and metaphors. That's all we have. So, how do we talk about it in language that makes sense for us in the here and now? What might be helpful for you is listen to Yoda. Yoda says that difficult to see, always in motion, the future is. That means nothing to most of you, but for some people, it means a great deal. So if all future talk is metaphor, some, for some reason, okay, if, if all these verses uh, before verse 17 are a metaphor and all the verses after 17 are in metaphor, why, why do we read this one line as if it's literal? Why have we formed everything we believe in about what's happening down the road in verse 17 as if it's literal? Listen, listen, if you were a first century Thessalonian, and, and it, this is so clear to you, this imagery is so clear to you, it means so much to you, it, it cuts you, it, it, it renews you right to the core of who you are, to believe in Jesus. And Paul is using this language. This is Caesar language for Jesus. Okay, these metaphors... The coming of the Lord is charged language. Perusia is the word used. is politically charged word used only for Caesar. Coming. Royal coming only for Caesar. This beautiful language that Paul is using, that there's this royal appearing. So whenever Caesar would come to the theater, or whenever Caesar would show up at your city, or whenever Caesar would come to an Olympic event... Okay? It was a royal coming, a parousia. And what people would do is they would, they would drop what they were doing. The whole town, say if he came to your town, say if he was coming to Thessalonica, the whole town would cease all activity. They would get up, they would all come out, mile out of the city, and they would 
welcomed the coming sea. They would welcome Caesar to their town, and, and there would be palm branches, and there would be music and trumpets, and there would be announcements of his coming. And Caesar would come to the town. They would welcome Caesar. They would walk into the town with Caesar, and Caesar would take his place as lord of the city. That's the language Paul is using. That is why this is so powerful. What Paul is saying is Jesus is the true Lord. Caesar is the parody. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. That's what he's saying. This is so politically charged. And then we read verse 17. Listen to this. And after that, we who are still alive are left with caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That word meet is a technical term for that delegation going out of the city and meeting the coming Savior, the Lord. Now, Paul is saying that this is what Jesus' return will be like. Two other times he uses this language, meet. Same word meet, two other times it's used in the New Testament. The first one is the parable of the ten versions um, that Jesus talks about, um, where the song All the Single Ladies was, came from. It came from that parable. Um, and so th- this idea that the, the, the ten virgins will escort the groom back to the wedding hall, beautiful language. Acts 28, it's also used. And when the people of Rome meet Paul and welcome him into the city. It's two other times. Three times it's used. And so it's this metaphor, this, this beautiful image that Paul is talking about. He's, he's saying this. Basically, this is what Paul's saying. There is coming a day when Jesus, the world's true Lord, okay, will come back and rule over all creation. That is the announcement. And it's happening in a letter to a people who are desperate to hear hope. Because they've changed everything about what they believe and they are being persecuted and they're in difficult hardship. And that is why Paul uses language like in the air. Why does he use language like in the air? Well, because Caesar could only walk into town. Caesar was mortal. Caesar was stuck in human flesh. Jesus, when he comes back, This idea of in the air means I am coming back to be Lord over everything. Over this city, over this nation, over the cosmos. That's Paul's language here. Rich, big, huge language. And the whole point of this, the whole point of this isn't that we stop in verse 17. 18 is the point. Let's read 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Look to the future to draw hope for the present. This passage does not belong in a movie or a schematic about the end times. You know where this passage belongs? It belongs at the graveside of someone you've lost. It belongs at a memorial service. It belongs in our hearts and in our words as we reach out to people. I have a college friend, Jen, who uh, 
just had a double mastectomy for, for cancer. That's where this language belongs. And so what are our takeaways? The takeaways for, for this passage are huge for us. The first one is this. Grieve with hope. Grieve with hope. Most people believed in Paul's day, in the Greek world, that there was no afterlife. Most people believed that death was the end. There were tombstones. I mean, you can research this yourself, but a lot of graves in this part of the world during this time were marked with this inscription. I was not, I am not, I care not. I was not, I am not, I care not. 2016 isn't much different. You ask a lot of people what happens when they die. There's an assumption, there's a, there's a heaven waiting for them. They, but a lot of people just don't believe that. The more and more you talk to people, most people just say, well, it's just kind of a leap into the unknown. It's just an end. Orthodox Christian belief believes something different. This passage in all of Scripture tells us, actually it shouts to us that death is not the end. Martin Luther King wrote in his famous eulogy in Birmingham, 63, says, I hope that you can find some consolation from Christianity's affirmation that death is not the end. Death is not a period that ends the great sentence of life, but a comma that punctuates it to more lofty significance. Listen to this. Death is not a blind alley that leads the human race into a state of nothingness, but an open door which leads man into life eternal. Let us daring faith, let this daring faith, this great invincible surmise be your sustaining power during these days ahead. And this eulogy that Martin Luther King was giving was to a, a whole community just ripped with race riots and killings and just pain. And some say, well, that's beautiful, but it's wishful thinking. Scripture over and over again. You cling to this idea of resurrection. And then some people on the other extreme, sometimes you run into Christians that say, you know, we, have, we shouldn't grieve at all. We have nothing to be sad about because all, you know, no. No. We can grieve. Jesus grieved. But we grieve in a specific way, and that's with hope. A number of years ago, I was um, asked by a young woman, and some of you guys know the story. Her name is Megan. I was asked by Megan in the same conversation. This has never happened to me before, and I hope it never happens to me again. She asked me in the same conversation, would I do her, would I perform her wedding, would I officiate her wedding, and would I officiate her funeral? You see, Megan just found out that she, her second try at getting chemo um, to, to deal with her, a bone marrow transplant to deal with her leukemia had failed. And she was in love with this guy, and they still wanted to get married, and so we did it. It was the it was the most tear-filled, emotional uh, wedding 
I've ever been to or officiated. I, it was hard for me to see my notes with the tears. And a week to the day, she passed away. And I was preaching at a church, a church I was at, um, and they had two services, and I'd finished the first service, and I walked off stage. Her sister Amanda standing there, just tear, making die. Their house was really close by, and so I had like 30 minutes between services. So we jumped in a car, went to the house. Corner hadn't come yet. Megan's there. Well, Megan's not there. Megan's body's there, but Megan's not there. So we prayed with the family, came back. I could barely get through the next sermon. And as I read at her memorial these words, how powerful they are. When you think about who they were written to and why they were written to them, this is language that gives us hope. It gives us hope in our grieving. And the reality is, is I want to be a community consistently and constantly moving towards embracing grieving and loss. Honestly, openly, authentically. See, because the story goes, for those of you who may be new to this whole Jesus thing, that you and I were made for a right relationship with God, this beautiful relationship with Jesus. And we don't live there anymore. We are east of Eden. And that is where we live. And we live now in warped relationships with each other and with God and with creation. And it doesn't matter how cush your life may look to others on the outside. You've probably got a full list of disappointment. And the reality is, is we struggle with, we're made for this, but we're born into this. That we're, we're made for Eden, but we're, but we're born in Denver, or we live in Denver, you know? And you might think this is the Garden of Eden, but have you been on the roads at all lately? So, um, see, all of us are fully aware, I don't care where you are spiritually, all of us are fully aware that, that there's a gap between what we're made for and what we long for. I don't know where you are in your faith, if you have one or not. There's a gap between what you think life should be like and what it actually is. It depends on how you try to make that jump. Maybe your body is not wish what you wish it was, or your marriage is not what you wish it was, or your former marriage is not what you wish it was. Your career is not what you wish it was. And you have the right to grieve those things. We grieve with hope that one day King Jesus will come back and put it back together. And the world will finally be and forever be how it was supposed to be. That is what this passage is about. Second thing it's about, and we'll finish up, is this. We can grieve with hope but it also means that we live with purpose and intentionality and focus right now. That's what it means. Not to squander the time that we have, not to squander the meaningless things that we get ourselves involved in. That sh- the future should shape how we live now, okay? 
that we would join Jesus in his work now. See, this is why I think rapture thinking is actually a false teaching. Yeah, that's, I said it. I think it's a false teaching because here's what it basically, it's a theology of evacuation. It basically says that all the bad stuff that's going to happen, I'm not going to be here for it, so therefore what I can do is I can separate myself, I can hold myself off into a little Christian enclave, and, and I, can, I can separate myself from all the difficult stuff that's happening in this world, and I don't have to participate in it because I have my ticket to heaven. That's not what Paul's saying at all. N.T. Wright, I've quoted him a few times today. I'm going to quote him one more time. He says, The American obsession with the second coming of Jesus, especially with distorted interpretations of it, continues unabated. He says this, Seen from my side of the Atlantic, the phenomenal success of the Left Behind books appears puzzling, even bizarre. Few in the UK hold the belief that the popular series of novels is based, that there will be a literal rapture in which believers will be snatched up to heaven, leaving empty cars crashing on freeways and kids coming home from school, only to find that their parents have been taken away to be with Jesus while they have been left behind. (laughs) I love this line. This pseudo-theological version of Home Alone has reportedly frightened many children into some kind of distorted faith. And we laugh. It's amazing how things catch on, right? It's amazing. The distorted faith of this future that we can escape, that this earth, that we can escape all the atrocities and all these things that might happen. Jesus, Paul says, will return to this earth to heal and renew everything. That is the message of Scripture. And if we believe in that Jesus, if we follow that Jesus, then we can't look and want to escape. See, we want to, right? I mean, that's kind of where I'm finishing this here. We, the, my, our call in this is to, to, to move away from escapism and actually engage, please. We need, to, we need to engage. That's why we're doing the Family Shelter Initiative. We're engaging. We want to engage difficult things. We want to, we want to get our hands dirty a little bit. We want, to, we want to see what, we want to lean into the things that are hardest, right? See, escapism is something that we naturally do. We naturally want to escape. I talk about this before in my life. One of my knee-jerk reactions when I'm in trouble is to run. Literally run. Uh, one of our first dates, Angela and I, we were in Toys R Us. I've told this story before, but it's just classic me. I'm throwing a football back and forth, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night, and Toys R Us. If you ever played at Toys R Us, I mean, am I right? So we're throwing football back and forth. I hit the sign on the aisle that has all that tells you what's on that aisle, and it's all, unfortunately, magnetic, and it all falls off onto the ground. I mean, we're the only ones in the store, and it's just huge crash, Right? I take off in there, like, <laughs> cleaning it up with the manager, and I'm, like, nowhere to be found, right? It's like that whole, we, we, we don't want difficulty. We don't want suffering. We don't want grief. We don't want to deal with the mess that this world is. And yet Jesus says, no, I'm doing something here now. You need to be a part of it. Don't try to escape it. Press into it. Why? Because we know that death is not the end. 
That's why. That's why we can grieve with hope. That's why we can live our lives intentionally. Okay? So this coming week, here's, here's, here's my call for us. May you, may I not escape. May we not seek to escape. May you lean into that difficult relationship. May you lean into that difficult uh, next step in your life. May you not escape into a bottle or a prescription or Netflix. May you not escape into your job or the arms of another lover. May you not seek uh, an escape from the things that are difficult and hard and painful and messy. But may you embrace it. And may you actually find Jesus there in the middle of it, in the mess of it. May you grieve with hope and live with purpose. This verse, one last time, therefore, encourage one another.